This is Dave Larzelier. Welcome to the Balanced Band Director Podcast, a show about music, band directing, leadership, and balancing your life and career. Each episode, I have the tremendous honor to speak to educators, composers, and friends who will share their insights and experiences about life and teaching. I hope that you find these interviews inspiring and motivating, and they help bring balance to your own life and career. Please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Balanced Band Director, or send me an email at balancedbanddirector at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the show, and I appreciate you listening. Aris, are you there? Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing, I think, as well as one could you know, be expected to do in current conditions. <laughs> that's about as best as we can expect, right? That is, that is true. And, you know, every day is a little bit different and, you know, yep. I mean, you can either choose to, to be controlled by that and let it get you down or just figure out how to adapt and keep moving forward. There you go. I think that's, that's wise advice. Well, well hey, uh, uh, yeah. I, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, thank you so much for uh, carving out an hour of your life. I'm sure that you're uh, busy getting ready for the beginning of the school year. So appreciate Absolutely. your time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, for my listeners, my uh, guest today is Dr. Iris Golden uh, from MSU. And so, uh, like I said, I'm excited to have her and have a great conversation with her today. So, um, Iris, can you just tell us a little bit about what you do at MSU? Um, I am the assistant director of bands and also the associate director of the Spartan marching band. So, um, I, I am obviously really very much involved with the every day to every day, day to day operations of Spartan marching band, um, which also entails working with Spartan brass, which covers hockey and covers, um, basketball in the spring. Um, Within the College of Music here at MSU, I am conductor for concert band. I am conductor for Spartan Youth Wind Symphony, which is our high school honor band. And I'm also uh, teach conducting and teach marching band methods as well. Um, so pretty full schedule. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, it's, it's lots of great opportunities to interact with our students here um, at Michigan State who are just phenomenal human beings. You know, I, I, I know that's one of the things that even in this less than um, normal existence gets me excited about the upcoming semester because it'll be fun to, to see all of them again and work with them and, and you know, just do our, our best to do as great a version of what we normally do as possible. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Um, I don't want to get too into the weeds with all this COVID stuff, but what I yeah. know that the – with the big 10 football season being canceled, what is the Spartan marching band planning to do this fall? If anything, um, we're not going to obviously have our normal activities or schedule, but we do, we're working on some things to, to keep our community involved and keep, keep ourselves, you know, present in each other's lives and set ourselves up for when we can go back to the things that we do. Um, which yeah. is be involved in football and be involved in, in Spartan athletics and all of those things. I mean, it's we're very fortunate that we have all of our traditions and all of the things that bring us together. And I, I, that's not something that's going to change this year. We'll just have to do it in a different way, in a different format. 
Yeah. Are you, um, is, and I, I'm a little out of touch with this, but is there talk that there might be a spring football season at all, do you know, for college? They're talk of many things right now. Um, and I, I would say to everybody, it's, it's, it's a waiting game. Sure. And, you know, I, from what I'm seeing, especially in the, in the news media, which, you know, with a grain of salt, we look at right. these things, you know, in all settings right now, I think, in, in our country, um, they're, they're working toward making decisions. And they're working towards figuring things out so that that if it's possible to do something in the spring, I think we'll see that. But I I literally at this point think I know about as much as you do. Yeah, I I hear you. (laughs) You Well, in the high school world, and I don't know how how, uh, dialed in you are, they've they've officially moved the football season to the spring and it'll be an abbreviated season. I mean, and like you said – you know, we could get to the spring and we could be no better off or even worse than we are now, in which case they probably wouldn't have a season at all. But that that is the plan, you know, and I think uh, that puts band directors in a tough position because most of our programs are kind of co-curricular. So it's like, well, what do we do during our band class in the fall? You know, do we still uh, offer kind of a marching experience for kids, even though there's no football program, or do we just scrap it all together and wait till the spring? And so, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of folks and there's not a consensus at all about what people are doing just yet. So we'll have to kind of see how that plays out. Yeah, and I think I think that's that I think that's probably to be expected in some ways because everybody's situation, though we all fall under the um, the large umbrella of music and then the large umbrella of band, everybody's situation is a little bit different. So and I think that's true at all levels. So you have to do what is bet well first of all safest for your for you and your students but then you have to do the thing that works best within your community you know and it's only only the person that works in that community and works with that program really knows what that is so you know you have to move forward in the best way you can for the people that you work with in the safest way possible in our current conditions i don't think there's any other option yeah that's smart so yeah, I guess it's just we'll just wait and see what uh, what we're able to do and when we're able to do it. I guess. Yeah, and it's all of us are are dealing with um, all of this in our own way. You know, it's it's. I was talking to someone yesterday, and it's like it, it's it's to a point. It's a grieving process because we've all yeah. lost something. Yeah, you know, we're, we've all lost something or or something we love doing, and and for a lot of people, they've lost someone someone that they loved from their from their lives, and it's just we're all in such a space dealing with all of all of the the things that happen on a day to day basis, but the overall like grieving process because I I can't I I, I know if you'd said to me in March. Yeah, we're going to be in the same place we were are right now, but it'll be August. We'll be sitting in the same place. I would have, I would have gone. Well, maybe, but I wouldn't have fully believed it. You know, you know what I mean. But it's here we are. You know, hopefully moving forward, uh, things will continue to improve, and we'll we'll tend to move forward and and out of out of the pandemic. But none of none of us know and all of us are just dealing with the fact that we don't quite have what we're used to and and we lost part of that back in the spring and it's just the most odd of all situations 
Yeah. You know? I think it's, I think it's really healthy to be able to label your feeling as grief. I think some people don't think of it that way, but I think really that's a really healthy way of looking at it and then trying to cope with that loss in, in the same way that you would cope with another loss and kind of identifying the stages of grief and identifying, you know, there is kind of a, there is, it's okay to, to feel this way. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel a sense of loss and, and knowing that, you know, we're going to work through this and that, you know, there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's really healthy to, to identify this whole process like that. Well, and it's, I think one of the things that sticks, because there's all sorts of these new terms and ideas and things that are being created again, day by day in this current situation. But I, I think the one that has spoken to me the most clearly is the Corona coaster. Like one day you're up, you feel just fine. The next day you're down and then the next day you're up. And then the next day you feel kind of okay. And then you're, and you're just riding the wave of all of the things that this pandemic is bringing. It's the most, and Corona coaster is really, I think the best term I've heard that kind of describes that sensation. I like it. I like it. And not mine, stolen, saw it on social media. Won't even try to claim it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about this, but let's let's move on to some other stuff here. Absolutely. Can you, can you tell us a little bit? I know you're you are a North Carolina native. Talk to us a little bit about um, how you started uh, as a as a you know a music student and tell us kind of through high school and undergrad and all that stuff. Sure. Well, my neither my mom nor my dad is a musician. The only music that they participated in was they they would sing in the church choir. Um, and yeah, not, not always the, like the most aesthetic experience. If you're looking at it from our classical traditions as, as musicians in our training, but it was something they enjoyed, you know, so I was very used to them like being in the choir and listening to music around, around home. I credit my ability to, to hear music and be able to recognize it years later, just from a few seconds or whatever of a piece from my dad's um, uh, love of the Hooked on Classics albums back in the no. 70s. <laughs> like Beethoven, Mozart, all those things with the backbeat. I mean, he had, I think there was at least two albums. I think he had, like every album that was available, he had them. Oh, so, you my know, God. That, oh, yeah. So that would play around the house, you know. So drop the needle, never been a problem for me. <laughs> And I and I credit it to that experience. But you know, you would have that, and then you would hear a Mahalia Jackson album, or you might hear Tennessee Ernie Ford, or you might hear um, Charlie Pride, or uh, uh, Dion Warwick and Burt Bacharach. I mean, all of those things were possibilities. If Dad's working in the office, the turntables going, that's the things you're hearing. Nice. Um, so even though they weren't musicians, I, I had a, a, an existence that was very musically involved for as long as I can remember. Um, so by the time I got to second grade, they decided to get a piano <clears throat> and then sign me up for piano lessons. So I took piano lessons from second grade uh, through my senior year of high school. Uh, but in sixth grade, as is typical, I was able to, to be in beginning band and and at that time, I picked out my instrument. I picked out alto saxophone. So that's what I played from sixth grade um, all the way through. And I put it this way for a reason. My first undergraduate career in, at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and throughout, I played in concert band. I played in marching band. 
I tried out for honor bands, all district, all county. Um, when I got to UNC Chapel Hill as a freshman, I played in the marching band. I did that for four years. I played alto saxophone for the first part of that. And then I switched over and played percussion, played tenors my senior year at UNC. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I've played percussion since then. Uh, yeah. But I took a year off because, let me see. So I did my four years, but my junior year, we had a change in director, directors. Um, and what that caused for a number of us, there's nearing 10 of us, actually, who were majoring in other things because this new director showed up and the direction of the program really substantially changed. Uh, a lot of us, I was political science major. That's my okay. first undergraduate career. And I have a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science that I can mm. hang on the wall. Uh, <laughs> uh, I took a year off and worked and stayed at home with my parents. And then, um, so I originally graduated from UNC in the spring of 1991. So I took off 91, 92. And then in the fall of 92, I started back. And that's when I actually started my music education degree and got done with that in 1996 from UNC Chapel Hill, which is when I started teaching. Um, so then from there, I taught middle school band for 18 years. And uh, during the time I was teaching, I would do conducting symposiums around and about. And then in 2004, within that, I started and finished my master's degree at UNC Greensboro. And then in 2011, I met Dr. Setatal, who's uh, not only my my current supervisor at direct supervisor at MSU, but also my former, not even former, still my teacher to this day. Uh, I met him in 2011, and then started my um, DMA here in wind conducting at MSU in the fall of 2014. Then in the fall of 20 or fall of 2016, I actually started as the assistant director of university bands at back at UNC Chapel Hill, my first alma mater, and worked there for two years and then was hired to come back here for the fall of 2018. So that's kind of the tour of how yeah. I went from place to place and did all of my degrees and ended up ended up here. So how, how, how far did you, away from UNC Chapel Hill did you grow up? Where was the school you went to? I, I grew up two and a half hours from Chapel Hill. So Chapel Hill's in the Triangle area, Research mm -hmm. Triangle of North Carolina, which is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up two and a half hours away in a little town called Supply, North Carolina, which okay. I, I know it's so sad to hear this is at the beach. Uh, okay. You know, so so from the driveway of my house, I could be at pretty much any southeastern North Carolina beach in about 20 minutes. Oh, that's awesome. You know, so if you're familiar with down there and it's right at the South Carolina border, so about a half an hour from Myrtle Beach or yeah. North Myrtle Beach, but 20 minutes from like Sunset Beach, Ocean Isle Beach, Holden Beach, uh, the Oak Island beaches down towards Southport, North Carolina. And then really back then, about a 30 to 45 minute drive from Wilmington, North Carolina, that was the closest big city other than, than North Myrtle Beach. So we were we were between those two things. Um, but yeah, grew up at the beach. Uh, yeah, my my in-laws, sorry to interrupt you, my, my in-laws actually live in, um, in Cary in the research triangle. Right. 
I remember so, that as you were saying that. So yeah. you, you know so, where I'm talking about. Yeah. I do. You know, we when we go to the beach, we usually go to Wrightsville Beach. Just yep. one that's a great spot. So I know that area fairly well. Yeah, all you have to do is hop on I-40 and just drive, and it drives yeah. you right toward Wrightsville Beach. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I actually started teaching in Cary. My first job was at West Cary Middle School. Oh, so okay, cool. yeah, they've got yeah. great programs on there. And they've yeah. Yeah, Wake County is one of the uh, one of the larger counties in the state of North Carolina. So you're talking like right around Raleigh, and then right around Charlotte, Mecklenburg County is probably the next big area. And then you okay. talk about Greensboro, which is Guilford County. So the triad on um, Winston Salem High Point, Greensboro would be that that third largest metropolitan area. Got so, it. Yeah. What um, circling back a little bit, what? What um, motivated you or pushed you to go get your doctor at work and leave public school teaching? Um, well, I even when I was in an undergraduate, I'd always been in, interested in learning more about conducting and mm-hmm. learning more about how conductors communicated um, with the ensemble. Because as an ensemble member, you can you can perceive a lot of it and you can see what the conductor's asking for, but you can't necessarily under get inside the head of the conductor to understand like, how did you decide that that would be the thing to do? So, I mean, I just, I had always been curious about conducting and the process and the art and just the insight of, of into or of conducting um and i also i've always enjoyed um the music ed side of what we do and i always wanted to be able to be involved with future music educators um you know for me it was i it's the decision for me the perception for me was and not just this just my experience of things it's like i wanted to still be involved in band but also wanted to be able to touch music students like experiences Right. So to me and for me, the, the better combination seemed to be, well, I should do a DMA because I'll be able to do both things. And I have the opportunity to be involved with athletic bands, which I also enjoy. Good thing that I do, right, considering the yeah. job that I have and the place <laughs> where I work. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I just it seemed to be, you know, just that natural curiosity for me to know more about the art and craft along mm-hmm. with the other things I was interested in. It just seemed to be, you know, very a thing that was I was very interested in pursuing. And, you know, on top of that, I just wanted to keep growing as a teaching musician. And after having taught, you know, you know, taught eight for 18 years at the middle school level, it was one of those decisions. It's like, well, I could look for a high school job or I could go back to school. And the opportunity came up that I could come back to school and um, making the decision between the two is just, I saw the opportunity really at probably even more at the heart of it. It's like, I get the opportunity to learn, observe and grow. So I think I would like to take the opportunity to do that rather than being in the classroom and, and while still being involved and, and teach, it's just when you're teaching in public school, you may be learning, but it's that is not your direct aim. Your direct aim is teaching and leading and making sure that your students are getting what they need. 
sometimes which does not balance out with you maybe always getting what you need. So again, I just took the opportunity. It's like, I'm going to take the opportunity to go and learn something for me and not, you know, feel like I'm taking away opportunity from students that I may be teaching or doing less for them because I'm worried about what I need for me. Hopefully all that makes sense. I mean, it's just, I think, I think it does. I mean, I think it, uh, you know, one of the things I really respect about you um, and your kind of, um, you know, package that you bring to MSU is that you do have such an extensive um, background in public school teaching. And I think that, you know, in this day and age, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of people that are in your direct, you know, parallel position, kind of the um, assistant or associate director of bands at schools, you know, they maybe, you know, did like, you know, undergrad and then maybe taught for a year or two or maybe even three and then went back and did master's right into the doctorate and then they're teaching, you know, and I think that you bring such a different perspective, especially when you're working with music ed kids. I mean, you know exactly what what uh, those students are getting themselves into. And I think that, that having that experience, and that perspective is really valuable, especially for the students at MSU. So congrats to you for, for, for doing that, making that decision. Well, thanks. I'll tell you this, I never man. The, the funny part to me still to this day is like, first, I wasn't really going to teach middle school. I was going to teach high school band. Sure, I was going to be a high school band director. That is what I'm doing this degree for. And here I go. But I didn't get a high school job. I got a middle school job. And I, and I pretty quickly figured out, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I have all of these people. And they're staring at me like I'm the authority in the room. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll find out so I can do it and then hopefully be better. So, yeah, there was no plan for me to ever teach middle school, but I, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me because that, to me, was such a learning opportunity and such a – such just, just the ga- I gained such a wealth of information about every single instrument and how to rehearse and and how to administrate a program and how to communicate with parents and how to connect and lead and and understand students especially of that age which you know it's it's with adjustment applicable to to all levels you sure. know you know and I, what was it i someone it was uh it was a cbdna pod not podcast but webinar i was watching where H. Robert Reynolds was talking, and he he just kept driving home the, the fact it's like you have to know the instrument, you have mm-hmm. to know the instrument, you know, like you have to know what the third tones on the clarinet do, you have to know what first and third means on a valve instrument, you have to know how to form the individual embouchures, you have to know. He was just driving it home, and he could not be more right. Yep. You know, and it's you only. I won't say only, you know, because we learn things from reading and we learn things in, in our method classes that are so important and that really apply to what we do. But they're only reinforced when you're in the trenches of that classroom where that flute player goes. So how do I finger third octave, blah, blah, blah. It's like, OK, well, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> it's like those third octave flute fingerings. Or I, that reson- yeah, that resonates so much with me. I mean, when I left undergrad, I thought I was going to go out and, you know, be a conductor, all this, you know, and, and my first job, you know, you just get smacked right in the face with all these things. You have no idea what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it just it takes forever. 
when did when did you feel like you kind of got it together? I mean, how long? How many years did it take you before you're like, okay, I, I'm I'm kind of getting this figured out? I'll let you know. <laughs> Don't touch on me. Come on, give us a little more hope than that. I'm not trying to not be hopeful. I, you know, one one of the things I love about this profession is the fact that you can always learn. Like, even if you have integrated something out, like, to you feel like, like the best edge of your ability, you are, and this is so rewarding to me, you're going to find someone who has that one more piece of information or that one more set of experiences than you've just maxed out that's going to help you get better. Yeah. You know, or you're going to, you're going to find that person who's rehearsing an honor band that you're hearing the same problem that you're trying to address in your own ensemble. And that person's going to say the magic phrase that makes everything quick. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. You know, know, for me a little bit, my, my, uh, my kind of background, I taught for two years right out of undergrad, taught kind of like a five through 12 program in Marshall. And Mm -hmm. then I did that. I did that for two years and I, I was totally fried, burned out. I was going to go sell real estate. I mean, I was like ready to just be done. It was just too much for me to do. And, uh, and I actually fell kind of ass backwards into a graduate degree back at MSU doing my music ed degree, um, as a graduate Mm -hmm. assistant, which was, which was kind of hilarious because, you know, I was observing student teachers and things like this. And I, I mean, I had no business doing that at the time. Um, and then I went to Waverly, which is on the other side of town. And I taught there for yeah. seven years. And I think probably by, by year five, I want to say, like, when I, when I got that, that, that class of freshmen all the way through the high school, um, mm-hmm. you know, the class of freshmen when I started, when, by the time that they had graduated, I think that's kind of, that for me was kind of when I felt like, okay, I think I know what I'm supposed to do here. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that was seven, eight years after my, you know, uh, undergraduate degree. I, I think that was for me kind of where I, where I felt like, uh, you know, I was able to, I guess, keep my, my head above water with all this stuff. Well, it's, and I think you nailed it on the head. So I think it's a couple of things. I think for me, because I didn't do um, music ed as my first degree and I was a little bit older when I started teaching, I think that that was a good thing for me. Yeah, you know, because I had that time to gain <laughs> maturity. I'm using air quotes that you cannot see, uh, <laughs> which I think was important. Uh, but then I think you're absolutely right. There's something that occurs after you get like it's that window of, I think, like year three yeah. to year five of total teaching where you actually get some things in place, like one of them being like, how on earth do I manage this classroom full of people who are staring at me for information? You figure out the classroom management thing a little bit better. And then you figure out the individual instrumental like techniques and things a little bit better. And you start to manage like, what do I pick for these students to play? What in the world a little bit better and I think the scaffolding of all those things in puts you in a place where you can then receive more information that makes you better and better. It's like this whole process because you've got to, like, I guess I, the thing that pops into my head as a phrase is like, you got to clean out like the cobwebs, the white noise of all the things that you're feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing, 
what am I doing? I'm going to go sell real estate. I'm going to go sell shoes. <laughs> like, I'm going to go do something different than B because I'm terrible at this, blah, blah, blah. And once you can calm that white noise down and figure out, ah, I could do this one thing correctly or better, then yeah. I think it just it progressively gets better as time goes on. Yeah. So, I'm wondering if you could, if you can think back to your middle school days, those first couple of years, you know, what are, did you have any, um, and we can kind of go any direction with this, but any like tricks or like tips on specifically like picking repertoire or like studying scores kind of efficiently? I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of us, when we first start looking at scores, like we don't even really know what we're looking at. We don't know like what to look for when we're picking music, but then once you pick a piece, like how can you kind of economize a little bit so that, you know, if you've got, if you've got five classes, you're potentially looking at, you know, 15 scores or 10 scores at a time or, you know, eight scores in a method book or something like that. And just if you could maybe, you know, take yourself back a little bit and, and reflect on some of the things that maybe have helped you be successful. Well, and I'll tell you, like pretty much anybody and everybody that starts out, I was not good at that. <laughs> Any of those things, you know, even after having classes where we talked about repertoire, because we were fortunate at UNC to have a class that we called Funny Band, where we would get all the instrumental music ed kids together and get, you know, or even choral music ed, orchestral music ed, and play wind instruments, percussion instruments, so we could try out different pieces. Uh, so we were very fortunate to have that, you know, typically grade one, two, three, uh, because we are playing on secondary instruments and that's always a special time if you're in one of those settings. <laughs> Did but, you say you called it funny band? Yeah, we called it funny band. That was, I, like uh, that. I can't remember the course, actual course name, sure. but we no. called it funny band cause it was funny. <laughs> like, like us trying to play oboes when we're saxophone right. players or percussionists. <laughs> that's, great. that's great. I love it. Oh, it actually should have been probably been more accurately terrifying band, but we called it a funny band. <laughs> or terrible. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. So, um, but yeah, even with that said, and even with having my conducting classes as an undergrad, it's like it's still terrible. Uh, it's like good grief, what am I doing? And I actually, I just moved across, across Lansing, across town here at the beginning of July. And I'm going back through things as you do when you move. And I found some of my programs from some of my very first concerts. And I'm like, who <laughs> allowed me to put these pieces on a concert and play them in public? Right. What do you mean? Like, what are you doing? Luckily, there's been growth. This is good. But um, to, to really more clearly answer the question, uh, you know, I think for me, one of the biggest things I figured out to do very early on is talk to other directors about the kinds of things that worked for them and their students and their programs. So, you know, it's like I'm talking to like some of my, my mentors that I keep, still keep up with to this day like the Judy Hoyles of, of, you know, the Central District of North Carolina or the Jane Cutchins in the Central District of North Carolina or the David Rockefellers in the Central District of North Carolina. Like those people very early on in my career helped me figure that kind of thing out. So it's like, how, how do you do this? You know, how do you select repertoire? My cooperating teacher 
Richard Richard McMahon was another like fantastic resource for me to just be able for me to help me figure out, well, if you think that you have a grade three band, they should be able to do the following thing. Because we're talking about, this was on the cusp of when we started to have the teaching music through performance and band series. Mm-hmm. Like I want to say that that started coming out at, at the Midwest at the end of my first or second year of teaching, maybe yeah. third, those books and CD sets started to appear. So having those conversations with more experienced directors who are like, this is what you look for, you know, and you don't want to overwhelm your students, you know, so you want to have a balance of this versus this and this versus this, you know, and I think another thing that happened that was helpful along those same lines is that's when composers like Pierre Laplante started to appear. Mm-hmm. So you would have some measure of like, well, this is a grade two Pierre Laplante piece, and this is the kind of part writing that you want. This is the kind of, you know, musicality demand, technical demand that you want to have for X level of band, which was yeah. great. Um, from a score study perspective, I, I think the thing that made me good at score study, better at score study, was graduate school. Okay. Because I really, I don't feel like back in the day that I really examined scores in the most effective way possible. Sure. You know, um, I feel like, uh, like, like, you know, I feel like, especially in like the grade one, two realm, it's like, I'm hearing this piece. I know how this functions. I know how to teach it. Here I go. You know, (laughs) and it's, I, I, I would say there were some times like, yep, I've got this down, but there's still like this underpinning of, but I'm going to learn a little bit of this with the kids instead of it being, here's how this piece functions. Here's the, here's the, the musical direction of this. Here's what I think the musical intent is. This is how the harmonies and the rhythms and all of these things together really drive the piece to function. And this is how I'm going to approach it fundamentally and with fundamentals to teach the kids the following concepts. I think it was, I think I've flipped to a point and maybe, maybe I'm not giving myself enough like credit, you know, maybe toward the end of my career, I was a little bit better at going through and looking and noticing things, looking for things and noticing things about the pieces and the construction and how it needed to function than I was at the beginning of my career. But I feel mm-hmm. like I, I, I feel like I feel like I continue to get better at it as each year moves forward. You know, and I think a lot of times, you know, I, I tried to do this when I was teaching and I wish I'd done more of it in the public school. You know, if, if for me as someone who's looking at grade, looking at big looking at method books, grade half, grade one, two, three, and maybe four. If, if it's a year that the kids are going to be capable of that, it's like, I feel like I should have pushed myself to study extended things more, which would have driven my um, development and studying scores a little bit more quickly. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think if I hear you correctly, what it sounds to me like you're saying, and I think, like you said, you don't give yourself enough credit because I think as you get better, you don't realize you're getting better sometimes, you know, you're just getting better. But I think what, I, what I'm hearing you say is like you – from the study of the scores, it kind of 
uh, informed your lesson planning or informed like what you wanted to, what objectives you wanted to tackle um, either in a class period or maybe a week or a month. Um, And so kind of, like you said, balancing, not only using the scores for that, but then saying, okay, you know, I want to work with my clarinets on going above the break. So I better find a piece that more the, maybe for the first clarinet part goes above the break. So I can challenge those kids. And then maybe the kids that are still, you know, either just started or just a little behind can stay on the second clarinet part and they don't have to go above the break. So, I mean, even something simple like that, you know, then that, that the, the score study kind of informs, I guess, you know, your, your lesson planning for, for what you want to do. Uh, yeah. I hope it does for everybody. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I think that's, I, I don't mean to oversimplify it. I think, you know, we've been teaching a long time. I think that um, some people don't think of it that way necessarily, you know, and, and I think even when I started, I realized that, um, you know, it's the repertoire is important, but now after doing this for 20 years, I realized like the repertoire is everything. I mean, it is, it's the curriculum, you know, and yeah. I didn't, I'm not sure if I got that ingrained into me, you know, ready for my first year of teaching, I guess. There is a uh, there back to speak of H. Robert Reynolds again. There's an article by him that is indeed named that, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering correctly, the repertoire is curriculum. Right. Um, there's an article. Um, one of my colleagues and actually former teachers as well, who's now the director of a uh, wind wind and orchestral studies down at UNC Greensboro, Kevin Giraldi. Um, has an article that speaks to the idea of backward mapping and looking at repertoire from the perspective of where do I, by X time, in time, say that's the the end of the school year, Mm -hmm. if I want my students to be here, what are the fundamental pieces that I have to have in place throughout the year to get them to here, and what is the repertoire that helps me to underpin, support, and develop that series of fundamental behaviors in them. I mean, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, but it really right. is like, if you stop and think about it, it's like, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, take yourself back to year one and it's like, sometimes this is, that's not all clicking right together just yet. You know, you're, you're focused on so many things. It's just hard to get it all together. You know? Well, cause year one, you're like, I would like the kids to sit in these chairs and play and make sounds that sound like the instruments are supposed to sound and the repertoire will help me keep them happy. Yeah. I think it's perhaps a way to look at it. And it's, you know, I, it's very interesting. Um, A friend of mine, and it's pretty, it's when I saw that she was doing this, I was kind of like, why have I never done this before? A part of her score study process is to literally take the techniques and fundamental materials that exist within a piece, and that's rhythm studies, scalar Mm -hmm. studies, um, Mm -hmm. chorales based on the harmonic progressions of the piece, Mm -hmm. like uh, Mm -hmm. taking leading melodic lines and creating a melodic study for everybody from the flute player to the tuba player that plays that melody. And she'll sit down and as she's studying her score, she's sitting with finale open and she's pulling out these elements and she constructs a unit plan with all those fundamental things in it and prints out the page for every player in the room. Wow. You know, so while she's doing that, you know, she may, she may obviously do some other fundamental things like breathing exercises 
or scale patterns for, you know, like, especially in a season where you're trying to prepare your kids for like an all district setting, those kinds of auditions, she'll do some of those things, but her fundamentals are so very, very supported by the content of the repertoire. It's, it's pretty remarkable to watch her go back and forth. She's like, okay, guys, this piece. All right, let's get our, um, oh, what does she call it? It's not study guide. That's not the term she uses. It's, it's actually a very apt term. I just can't think of it right now. And it's pretty Cord- remarkable to watch her go back and forth between those two things. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that's impressive. I mean, why, um, did I not, why did I not think of that, you know? <laughs> right, exactly, right? That seems like a simple idea, right? Yeah. Um, all right, well, can we transition just a little bit? Of the podcast is to talk about balance, not only a work life balance, but you know, we talked about some things in your career that you could balance. But do you have, um, you know, how what are some things that you do to achieve balance just in your in your own life? Um, I try very much to work at work and not work at home. Mm. You know, it's taken me a long time to do that, you know, and there was the time in my career when I was public school teacher that I would be at work at six o'clock in the morning and I'd be leaving at six o'clock at night because I just wanted things, I wanted things done in a particular way. And and it was kind of like whatever it takes kind of situation. Like I'm just going to put in the hours to do it. And of course, over time you become more efficient. So it may not be that 12 hour kind of, push every day but you know it's especially I feel like the beginning and toward and through perhaps the middle of your career you just have to kind of that that's just what it's going to take um and you know during that time you know if I left the building at five or six things would still follow me home and I'd go home eat dinner and I'd continue to work whatever um but I once I think it was when I got to my yeah, it was when I got to the last public school job I had, I just kind of went, okay, th- this is not the thing that we need to do. It's like, we need to go and we need to go to the gym. You need to figure out when you're going to go do that. Or you yeah. need, need to figure out when you're going to take a walk or whatever. You need to figure this out. And if that means that you get to school at 7.30 instead of 6 in the morning, then that's what you're going to do. If that means you're going to leave school at 4.15 instead of 6, then that's what you're going to do. So it's just a matter. I just had to make a decision. It's like I'm not – I just – I. it's it's not that I don't want to. It's just I'm, I'm just not going to do this this way anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and it's – and having some, you know, some interests outside of – the band room are not, it's not a bad thing to do that. And I don't have a ton of them, you know, probably one of the biggest things I am is a, is a connoisseur of TV shows. I, I love to watch TV and I like to, and I like to read. Um, and I'm kind of getting back in the habit of reading. It's taken me a while to do that because graduate school is heavy duty reading. Sure. And I just, my brain just kind of went, you know what? We're not going to do that right now. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you know, I tell people that all the time about, you know, you literally could work 24 hours a day if you wanted to. I mean, there's, there's work to be done, you know, 24 hours a day when you're a band director. Um, yep. But I like what you said about just setting parameters and saying, Hey, you know what, at, at 4.15 or 4.30, I'm going home and I'll, I will meet the work tomorrow. And that's just, I think that's, uh, that's an important 
uh, thing for young teachers to understand. Hey, talk to me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one thing I was going to say, and it's like, it's really that, that has become interesting yet again in our, in with online teaching going on, because most of us have set up some, some sort of home office space. Right. That now we can grab a cup of coffee, grab a, like a, a drink, or as you all call it up here, pop, I believe. <laughs> uh, and uh, we call everything in the South a Coke or a Pepsi. So it's like we're not very discerning. Uh, but you can just grab that or grab a snack out of the fridge or grab a meal and just walk to wherever in your house the office is. Yeah. And it's like at some point, though there are necessary things to be done, you've got to, you just have to, you have to cut yourself a break. You know, you can't, or perhaps you should consider not being on Zoom like if you have to be on there for eight hours a day anyway, maybe not aim for 12 by continuing on, you know, so just, it's just something right. I think we should all probably be concerned about yeah. in our, in our current teaching environment. Yeah. So anyway, I started, you know, with, with zooms that I don't actually kind of have to, to be like visibly present on. I turn the camera off and I turn my face away from the computer screen and I just listen, you know, because I feel like, like a staff meeting or something like that, you know, because I just feel like if you're going to be on zoom for four or five hours a day, it's just not good for your brain or your eyes. I think to be looking at a screen that long, you know? No, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, one of the things I know that you've, you've done for the last couple of years is this, and I might have the title wrong, but it's like the Facebook band director book club. Yeah, yeah, the yeah was the BDG book club, I think is what we call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So I used, to, I mean, I know you guys did that recently, and and I I'm embarrassed that I've never done any of the books. Every time I read, it, I'm like, I should read this book, and then you know, three weeks later, you're like, okay, and we just finished this one, and I'm like, oh damn. <laughs> so uh, it moves it moves along pretty quickly, I know. But uh, what um, do you have like maybe one or two or three books that you think would be great for every band director to read? Well, I'll tell you, um, yeah, I do actually, because I just, your question made me think about, so which books have really are the ones that you go back to and that you read because you just need to hear those words again? Uh, One of them is the uh, Richard Floyd book, um, The Artistry of Teaching and Making Music. That book is phenomenal, and it really changed the way I thought about uh, that. I think about a lot of things that I do. Um, the interesting thing is he has a new, he has a new book coming out. I think it's this month or next month uh, called the seven deadly sins of music making. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Cause it's like, well, this first book was tremendous. So I, I can't wait to, to see what he's sharing in the second book. So that's one. Yeah. Um, another one that I re reread Every year, it's a series of them, and I, I tend to pick one per year, but I tend to go back to the very first one, is the Rehearsing the Band series, the uh, uh, John Williamson books that he compiled over a series of years are just so many, they're, it's bullet points or tidbits from like great conductors, great directors of bands from you know some of the major universities around this country, just sharing their thoughts and tips. It's Yeah another game changer um another that i read that is believe it or not not music based uh is mindset by dr carol dweck and that that book 
really will make you examine like how you are in the world. And it talks to the concept of um, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Okay. And how it helps you identify who you are, but it also helps you identify who the people in your life are that you interact with regularly. And it's not, no one's one or the other permanently all the time. We flow back and forth between fixed and growth, but it really can, especially with students. I found it was very helpful with students and really with my public school band room in general to just be able to look at the behavior and go, okay, so this is in a fixed mindset. How -hmm. can I help this student grow out of that and more toward a growth model like perception of him or herself themselves um, just by observing and helping and just helping guide them through that. Um, one more, if, if, if you're friends, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you know that I love Brene Brown and mm-hmm. her books are tremendous. And I hate to even pick just one of them because each one of them is such it's they're so powerful but daring daring greatly is a phenomenal book and just especially for us as as um artists and musicians and teachers just dealing with our own vulnerability and communicating with all the people in our world and understanding our reactions and understanding why we behave in certain ways Super important. Um, I'll give you one more. Okay, good. I'll give you one more. Uh, Intelligent Music Teaching by Robert Duke. Yes. From the University of Texas at Austin. That's actually the uh, book book club book we did uh, with BDG this summer. Right. I read that in graduate school, and I still read that or reread portions of it on a regular basis. Very good. I lied. Awesome. One more. One more. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You're looking at your bookshelf. You're looking at your bookshelf right now, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm working from a list here because I wrote them all down. The Art of pa- Possibility by Rosamond and Ben Zander. What's fantastic. The, art of, the art. The Art of par- Possibility. So if you've ever seen um, Ben Zander do a TED talk, yeah. Um, he's the, 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 the man who talks about one buttock playing in his TED right, talk. Yeah. Yeah. One cheek. <laughs> yeah. 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 One cheek play. Phenomenal. Um, <laughs> and we were fortunate enough, Anthony Messina from, uh, university of Illinois, who's in the same position I'm in down there, essentially. He and I were able to host Ben Zander on a series of two talks this summer on zoom and just, he's incredible. And how he looks at music and how he, I, I feel like he literally sees the great possibility in every human interaction. Yeah. It's pretty stunning. So, yeah. Okay, I, I'm, I, I'm love that, I love that, that Ted talk that he does about um, the shining eyes one is great. It's got some yes. great, some great moments in it. The book, if you get, if you, if you've never read the book and you grab the book, the, just the chapter on giving an A alone is such a thing it's it's such a great series of considerations for us as teachers yeah yeah it's a great book 
So I'm awesome. done. I promise. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for all those are great. I mean, I, I am familiar with all of them and I think I've only actually read one of them. So uh, that'll be great for me selfishly, but hopefully, uh, you know, some of the listener, listeners out there will be able to, uh, you know, tackle some of those. Um, Cause like I said, those are all, you know, top, top 50 books for sure. So that's awesome. Um, well, we're kind of winding down on time here. This has been a, a great conversation. Ours. I, again, I appreciate your time. Um, oh, one, sure. one, question, one question I always ask all of the, uh, all my guests is, and it's a bit unfair. I'll just give you the heads up, but it's <laughs> kind of, um, desert, desert Island piece or desert Island recording. You know, do you have a particular piece of music that just speaks to you on, on a whole nother level that you just couldn't live without? Well, the, you know, that's, that's like asking a parent to pick one child. You know? know, who's your you favorite? Can a, you can name a few. It doesn't have to just be one. Well, you know, and it's such a, I feel like by becoming a collegiate band director, I went back to like being a baby band director again. Like, even though there's so many pieces throughout my career that I've played or conducted, still going back and then becoming a, like becoming a, a conductor teacher at the collegiate level, you just re-examine things. Um and, and I have to tell you, you know, we very fortunate to be able to, to uh, be in conducting studio with our, our graduate students and Dr. Setatal and, and, and Dr. Thornton um, as often as I can get there. And, you know, in our Zoom sessions this spring, it, it reminded me, first of all, that one of my favorites is, is always going to be the Hindemith Symphony in B flat. I just, the... The inventiveness and the counterpoint and the the interplay of lines and harmonies and the thought process that you can watch evolve through that piece, it's it's just remarkable music to me. Um, so that's one. Um, another that I will always be attached to, and there's two of them actually, um, that I did in college with our collegiate band director, uh, the Doll Sinfonietta. Oh, I've just been getting back into that. I just love that piece so much. It is so difficult, <laughs> but it, it is it is difficult and beautiful all at the same time. Yeah, and to think, you know, because we we still tend sometimes to be taken aback at the term tone row musically. It's like, oh, is it that? But it's like not it, just because music has that terminology surrounding it doesn't mean that it's not music that is not beautiful. You know, right. there's so many, especially the slower movement, movement of that piece with the alto clarinet solo. Mm. It's just gorgeous. And the use mm -hmm. of the the offstage playing from the trumpeter is just it's phenomenal music for so many yeah. reasons. So that'd be another Um Another that I'm tied to just because, again, of Dr. Jim Heil, he was our conductor at UNC Chapel Hill, and we had so many experiences surrounding this, this piece, um, Armenian Dances Part 1, um, yeah. which is a piece that I did actually on my first concert here at MSU, yeah. and I actually played that for Dr. Heil. I got the, the opportunity to play that for Harry Beejan, Dr. Beejan, at two points, um, but Ironically, what I'm coming to find now is though I really have always been attached to that piece, I'm actually beginning to like part two more than part one. I keep 
looking at the score to part two and just finding things, it's like, wow, okay, how did he come to this point? Or how did he decide to use this folk song in this way, which is different from the original? What, what did this result in? So both parts of that now are, are really pieces that I enjoy a lot. Um, and another that I've gone back to over the pandemic, I actually went to my office and grabbed scores that I just wanted to go through again, examine again, the Gould Ballad for Band. Oh, I don't, I don't know that one super well. I, I've heard of it, but I don't know it super well. It's, there, it yeah, it's, um, I've come to look at it a little bit differently and a little bit more from the idea of like, how is this, how are these harmonies reminiscent of the gospel setting? Like okay. how, how is this to me? It, it just has a different, cause I actually conducted that with the wind symphony here in graduate school. Uh, it's actually the, the last piece that I did as a graduate student. Cool. And it just, for me now, unbelievably the four years later, but six years total later than when I started as a graduate student, which is just ridiculous to me that's been six years, <laughs> just has a, like a different level of reverence and a different le level of reflectiveness than it did back then. Couldn't tell you why, but it just does right now, yeah. you know? And then I have that's my old, whole other set of middle school, junior high band pieces that I'll always go back to, but we, we could like... Talk about that another day. Another podcast, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, that's that's awesome. I think you know the 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 desert island question, like you said, is it's kind of unfair, but I think it gives us a little bit of a, a kind of peek into into who you are as a person, and, and I think your your list there uh, speaks to that a lot. So thank you for sharing those with us. Sure. Um, and then you just the last thing I want to ask you about, you know, you've mentioned a lot of your teachers and your mentors that you've had throughout your career and education. And just wondering if there's anybody else that you wanted to, any other heroes or anybody you want to just, you know, have a, a moment of gratitude for? Well, I stand by the idea that I would not, I don't feel like at least some people fuss at you when you say things like this, but whatever. It's like, I would not be having this conversation with you today were it not for my middle school, high school band director, Steve Skillman, down in Southport, North Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. James Hulick, who was a saxophone teacher for me uh, back in high school, just a remarkable musician in person. And that was just through summer camp opportunities I got to study with him. And then Dr. Jim Heil, whom I've mentioned, uh, Dr. Nancy Whitaker, who was the music ed professor at UNC Chapel Hill when I was there, just an incredible teacher and human being. Um, there are so many teachers in my public school teaching career that have been so influential. I hate to even say a name out loud because I know, I know that I will miss somebody. <laughs> but I would, my last teaching assignment which was at gravelly hill middle school i just the the colleagues that i had in that county in particular his name's andy carter who still he just actually left that county this year and then um patricia hughes who left the same year i did they were my high school colleagues i sent kids to both of them just phenomenal uh another i mentioned her earlier my my colleague in middle school band tiffany hicks 
has influenced so many of the things about what I do as a teacher and also just from a personal perspective as just a human being. And then, of course, like literally, you know, the person who pushed me in ways and like not always comfortable and who's not afraid to ask questions to make you stop and think, why did I do that thing that I just did? Is that the is that the best version of that? How could I reconsider that? And who just continues, I feel like, to caretake like me as a musician, person, teacher, professional is Kevin Satatal. I mean, mm-hmm. our my I call him teacher boss. Um, yeah. <laughs> it just like he he is just he's just a fantastic person to work with. So, you know, I I feel like I have been incredibly fortunate on that little tour from Skillman to where I am, Steve Skillman to where I am now, just to have all of those people and like so many more people just be interested in helping me be better. Yeah. It's yep. just, it, we all, we all have those people. Yeah. You know? No, I think that's great though. And the, but that, that says a lot about, um, about you, but then it also says, you know, about the incredible uh, responsibility we all have as teachers to try to find people in our life to be able to students, you know, to try to have that impact on other students, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, well, quite frankly, you know, if, if, if young teachers remember nothing else when they first start teaching is that it is really okay to ask questions. And it's really okay to to go and approach that seemingly inapproachable, more experienced teacher, because you could be encountering someone who has the same kind of support system that I just described, who will do the thing that you just described. Yeah. And will be like, yeah, what can I do to help? How can I be glad to come to your band room? We can go out, grab dinner when times allow all of those things, you know, because there are people out there who just are interested in helping people grow and helping people feel successful, which is, which is what I've been surrounded by my entire career. I feel like. Great. So, yeah. Well, well, I just, once again, just wanted to say um, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you and your, your, uh, your leadership and, and expertise. You know, I've had lots of students who've played in, in the youth symphony or youth wind symphony and, and have just enjoyed their time thoroughly with you. And so uh, I just appreciate you as a, as a, as a colleague and as a friend, and I just uh, appreciate your time today. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to be able to, to sit and chat. For how, sure. how, how uh, can we connect with you? I know you, uh, you said you're on Facebook quite a bit. Would you feel comfortable sharing an email? Sure. The easiest way is my MSU email, which is goldenar mm-hmm. at msu.edu. Okay, very good. Well, yeah. RS, once again, thanks so much. I, I hope you guys have a, a good start to the school year. It's going to be interesting, but, uh, you know, we'll just do the best we can. So uh, good it's luck. Always a, it's always a go green situation, Dave. You know right. that. I hear you. Okay, take care. I'll talk to you later. Great. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Right, peace. Bye-bye. This has been the Balanced Band Director Podcast. Again, my name is Dave Larzalier. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to our show today. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram, it's Balanced Band Director 
or feel free to send me an email at balancedbanddirector at gmail.com. Talk to you soon.